Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Net Positive Podcast. A podcast which educates and inspires marketers, product managers, and companies in the best way to generate and optimize your flows. We're your hosts, Matt Brown and Jess Walker, and we will bring you the latest on how to improve your signup flow, increase your leads, and grow your business. Let's Let's jump jump in. in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Net Positive Podcast. On today's episode, you may notice that it's slightly longer. We're speaking to Ken Sandy, who is an absolute veteran in technology product management. And honestly, I tried to cut it down, but I couldn't because everything that Ken said was gold. He served as vice president of product management at leading online education companies like Masterclass and LinkedIn's lynda.com. He's currently an executive consultant and advisor for startup and scale-up companies. Ken pioneered and teaches the first product management course offered in the engineering school at UC Berkeley with over 400 PM alumni. And he's recently released his new book, The Influential Product Manager, How to Lead and Launch Successful Technology Products. Definitely recommend to anyone in the product management space. We're so excited to speak to Ken today and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to the program, Ken. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm excited to be talking to you today. Hey, look, Ken, you know, you've had an incredible career and, and, and most recently launched a book, which we're going to touch on in a little bit, but I'd just love to know a little bit about your backstory. How did you get here? Oh, sure. Well, I'll go way back in the time machine then. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, as a kid, I was always very, very curious, very analytic, uh, a great problem solver. And uh, I very early on in my kind of life was guided into the engineering track uh, I studied engineering at the University of Melbourne in Australia, where I'm actually uh, at the moment. Oh, you're at? Oh, wow. Awesome. Yes, I'm actually in Melbourne. I've, uh, I've uh, been in Melbourne for a couple of months uh, as I'll call it a bit of a COVID refugee, I guess. Did you have to do the 14 days quarantine? No, I actually, I actually got here just before the quarantine was implemented. And just before the lockdown as well? Yeah. And uh, I've, I went through the Melbourne lockdown and... Oh. I've been um, back through the other side, so it's really great to see what, you know, what leadership we've had here and Mm. how really the community really banded together to protect and look after each other. Of course, it's not what we're here for today, but it's been been a really eye-opening experience. Mm. Yeah, so I went to university, studied engineering, uh, computer science, loved it, but, uh, you know, within very, very quickly, in fact, doing some internships, I realized that while I loved engineering, it didn't really give me that bigger picture. And I kind of uh, fell into an opportunity to work um, with McKinsey and Company, which is the management right. consulting company, uh, also in Melbourne. And that really opened my eyes to the world of business and how companies can create and deliver solutions to customers and just really the, the, the bigger holistic thinking. Uh, but in management consulting, you tend to leave just as the, 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 the going gets, that gets good. Yep. Uh, so once your strategy is adopted and you're about to move into execution, you kind of like, you know, wipe your hands and, and leave and go do the next thing. Yeah. So I, I kind of had this interesting epiphany where I was just like, I really liked the strategy and the business and, and, and sort of thinking about solving these big problems and having all of that holistic context Yet I also like getting my hands dirty and actually executing and working all the way through. That's very uh, not management consulting of you. <laughs> very not management consulting and very not kind of, you know, just you know, give, me, give me the requirements and I'll execute them. I wanted to know, <laughs> know what, the, what was behind it all. And so 
I was very fortunate, uh, very early career to fall into product management as, as, my, as my, my gig and uh, joined a startup. But uh, PMs weren't really even a thing back then. I think I was called a business analyst. Right. Uh, but I naturally gravitated towards those responsibilities that we would now expect of a product manager, you know, understanding the problem, working with stakeholders, defining an, a solution with, with um, uh, designers and creative team, building the product with engineers, launching it. It was all very trial and error, really. And that's how I kind of got started. And so I was lucky enough to um, have an opportunity to move over to San Francisco uh, and have been working in startup companies ever since. My, my general sweet spot is I tend to either now consult with or advise or join companies that are in that sort of just, they've got an early traction on the product. You might say they're, they've just managed to find product market fit and I really help them scale and I've consistently joined companies and helped them scale to over $100 million in revenue, grown from you know 30 people teams to 400 people teams and kind of um, really built out and matured product practices for for multiple companies now, uh, and uh, and even more fortunate, I've I've now had an opportunity to create uh, a product management course at UC Berkeley, which I still teach and have been now for nine years, wow. and uh, and I'm proud to say that we're we're now even training and coaching and building product managers from scratch, so they don't have to learn by trial and error like I did. That's incredible, and and you know, on top of that, you've even you've even launched a book more recently. That's right. Yes, uh, I I launched the book, uh, the influential product manager: how to lead and launch successful technology product man- uh, products. Uh, that came out in in um, January twenty twenty. My timing was terrible. Oh, I don't know. There are a lot of people sitting around needing something to read during yeah. that period. True. Actually, I'm very very pleased with uh, with with how the book's done, and I'm getting a lot of good feedback. Uh, about it, so I'm, mm. I'm, 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 I couldn't be more thrilled. So yeah. yes, that's that's been a, a pretty pretty big achievement. I've been loving it. Thank you. It's um, I love that it's a it's a book, but it's also the the case studies and the examples that you give the real world, you know, problems that you've had to solve are really nice to to relate to. So yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. You know, I'd heard a lot about product managers needing to work in, work or lead through influence or, you know, that, what's that saying? You know, all, all responsibility, no authority. And while I actually do believe that that is a true statement, I'd also observed a lot of confusion and uncertainty from product managers about what this actually means in terms of what I do day to day and, you know, behaviours and activities in the workplace. And I didn't see much in the way of literature breaking that down from that high-level concept mm. into actionable, practical steps that a PM can take at all stages of the, of the product lifecycle, from ideation to building the product to launching the product and optimizing the product, and in particular, managing an increasingly complex set of stakeholders as a, you know, your, your role is so central. Uh, and, and so that's what I sought to do is to, is to really break down what does leading through influence really mean practically at all steps mm-hmm. to give you some ideas about how to approach it, things that I did wrong that I would dearly wish you avoid, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and to give you like tons of frameworks and ideas uh, it's a, you know, as a reference, but also a book you can kind of like flick through to give you a really good idea about what an influential product manager really does 
you have a few examples and case studies that talk about uh, the different types of sign-up flows and whether that's, you know, to ask for a lot of information or the bare minimum. And when you're looking at that within different companies, what's your process when designing the flow? And do you find, how do you find a perfect middle ground between a customer wanting a simple sign-up versus a company that wants as much information as possible while still converting? Like that's the tricky part. <laughs> sign-up flows and onboarding, I think, is is where the some of the greatest opportunities exist. In fact, I had a uh, uh, a mentor of mine who I used to talk about having a a retention issue in the product, you know, month one, month two, month three mm. retention or month to month retention or year to year retention. And he, he said to me, can, I don't think you have a retention issue. That's a month to month issue. I think you have a five minutes retention issue. And he, what he meant by that is that's the make or break for most products is can you go from this sort of consideration phase where you've made this promise, this, this promise of great value mm can you get to that first point of value as quick as possible to really uh, lock in that customer and get them excited about it? And there's no easy answer because uh, whether it's a low consideration purchase or a high consideration purchase, whether, uh, whether there's lots of steps to get set up, sometimes you can't avoid that, uh, whether you've got free trial versus or, or some kind of freemium mm. service, and, and customers and users are different. Some arrive with very high intent, knowing exactly what they want, and they get through that process very quickly. Other mm-hmm. times they need a lot of time to like dwell and think about the, the product. And so there's no, no easy answer except optimize it, mm-hmm. uh, really focus on trying things out and seeing what you can learn because you can be surprised uh, you, your users will turn up from different channels and have different ideas and no one size fits all. Mm. I will say that there is a North star to all of this. And this is, this is something that's really, I think helped me. And that is, I don't obsess about just trying to look for registrations or, or trying to, um, even maximize the, or minimize the amount of time it takes to get a user through a flow. Uh, neither am I, am I trying to ask many questions about customer satisfaction mm. or APS. You know, sometimes those surveys actually appear right in the middle of your sign-up flow. I think that's un- unbelievable. Baffling. Yeah. Out of principle, I don't want to sign up anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and yes, it's important to measure stuff that's important to you. And that's mm. your things like your CAC, your conversion rate, your average order value. But I, I think the, the, the true North Star is what percentage of users can you get to the first point of real value extraction, that first aha moment? It can be very small. Mm-hmm. It can be a demonstration or, or a step or just a part of the experience that validates the value proposition that they learned about mm-hmm. and actually said, oh, I, I did something and it actually delivered on even a very small part of that value proposition if you can define that aha moment mm. and then optimize to get the percentage of users to, to that point, you're on the right track because it propels the, whatever you, that is, it propels the user to the, 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 the next step and the next step and the next step. So you don't want to overreach there. Mm. Just what is that, 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 that first step? And then conversely, if you want kind of the, the negative of that, what percentage is dropping out? And yep. that, that is massive by most standards 
uh, big, big unsolved problem. And what, what um, Aflowly is doing is fantastic. It was really trying to tackle what I think is one of the biggest issues. Uh, and that's, you know, more importantly to understand why they're dropping out and how do you, you take those little steps to, to um, Im- improve that. It can be sometimes as simple as an unanswered question or uh, you were just being a little bit too pushy mm. or, um, or just um, there was uh, some specific thing that they were looking for that just didn't get, uh, didn't get answered. So uh, you, you'll find it if you really optimise. Um, I know the only, the only thing that's worked for me is to, um, is to incrementally try new things until you find what works and you can be super, super surprised by things. I'll give you one example. Please. Um, we were looking at, uh, at the, you know, a, a masterclass, masterclass is, is $90 a pop and $180 a, uh, a subscription per year. At least that's the, the, the prices that we were dealing with at the time. Now, when you think about that, that's, that's, a, big, that's a big purchase and yeah. that's a big ba- mental barrier. But when you think about it divided by 12, it's actually the cost of a little bit more than a Netflix, certainly like a, a, a monthly like way of educating myself. That's mm. worth $15. Mm. Totally. Right? So simply by making sure people understood that math and saying this is going to be, I think it was roughly $15 per month, that is $180 charged annually. Yeah. Changing that messaging had a massive impact on the conversion because people were now able to like anchor that price mm. into something a lot more reasonable to them Absolutely. than, oh, this is this big one-time charge versus, yeah. wait, my education's worth $15 a month. Yeah, and then you calculate that again down to that's only three coffees. I can definitely afford three coffees. <laughs> yeah. we, we could have probably gone pretty crazy, yeah. Yeah, a little coffee mug, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, click this or that or something. You can try, <laughs> try great things. But, but who would have thought just little tiny messaging like that? Mm. I mean, it, it's obvious in hindsight, but it took us a while to, to really test enough ideas mm-hmm. to find that that was a, was a, was a big, big one. You know, I really love that North Star metric. I, I think time to value is by far the most important thing that any business owner or any executive in, in any startup can be thinking about. Talking about uh, business ownership or, or executives in startups, we, we want you to answer a pretty contentious question here. So oh, the sign-up right. funnel uh, for product-led growth companies, who do you think should be in charge of that funnel? Like who should own <laughs> that? It should, it, should it be the marketing team? Should it be the product team? And why? I will answer this question, but I'm going to take you a little bit on a journey first. Um, I struggle with this question simply because <laughs> I, I wonder if it's fundamentally the wrong one to be asking. Um, in fact, if, you, if you're kind of asking that question, I'm wondering whether maybe you're actually in a product-led company because product-led to me is not a product team leading the company. Mm. It's a culture. Yeah. A product led company is an organization where the product is the center of the entire, the main vehicle for optimizing the entire end to end customer go to market. And nothing matters more than delivering a product that anticipates that those needs, those answers in a very simple, intuitive and delighting way. Uh, It's, it's something that create a product led sort of mantra, if you will, creates company, company wide alignment across marketing, sales, customer success, engineering, design, and, of course, product. And all activities are kind of focused on how do you remove friction points around that total customer experience? 
And success actually requires every one of those teams to have that kind of viewpoint. Uh, the product has to be the vehicle by which we nudge users along to the next level. Now, that doesn't mean people can't be involved. Indeed, you know, a, a customer service person, an email, but it's not the primary way. It's not like a enterprise sales-driven organization where it's primarily people yep. bringing people through the funnel. And so I would answer that question by which team has the true culture of customer mm. who understands the personas, the values, has the perspective of that bigger customer journey over many touch, uh, touch points, sees customers as ongoing relationships, is looking to empower the customer to self-service so they can actually solve more of their own problems. That's the team that should own mm. the sign-up funnel. It's interesting because it sounds like you're describing a customer success team, you know, the ones that you call when you need help because they always know the problems. They always, you know, try to get them to self on board or do it themselves. So that's a... To, to broaden that answer a little bit, like mm. in, I'm kind of saying that each team kind of needs to play a role if you've aligned it. Well. Now, mm. yes, now maybe product owns it, but they coordinate the effort and they don't own it by kind of deciding on what that should be and pushing that through. They create the context for the rest of the organization to understand what being product-led actually means. So just simple examples. What do the, the design team do? You have to deliver the best user experience with the least human assistance possible. You've got to lower that cost of delivery. You've got to make things intuitive. There are hard choices to be made. Design in that case is about making really hard choices to get the friction points as low as possible. Marketing is a lot more about creating product qualified leads and uh, looking at getting that large uh, top of funnel uh, so we can get good trial behavior and, and making sure that the users they're attracting in there are going to be um, uh, uh, able to navigate that, the, you know, the product and they're, they're well suited to the product. The customer su support team they primarily need to be okay with self-service models to get to mm -hmm. meaningful outcomes for the users while intervening where they need to nudge users along. They're not about just answering um, problems, but I actually think they, they need to play a role in detecting where those friction points are and um, helping to you know, get, get not only the customers along, but be a source for the product team to identify uh, priorities. Mm. Uh, revenue groups are looking at pricing. You need to be okay with thinking about different tiers and low cost entry points and trial and, and, and actually maybe even having uh, uh, some parts of the product that don't make money. So you can get people to, to down into high value um, relationships and uh, even sales organizations. So if you think about like a more um, SaaS model, that's product led sales, there's no longer just thinking about the top of the funnel, but they might be quite low in the funnel mm. where they're taking warm leads of people or, or users across the organization that are using the product and they're able to farm those, those groups together and create sort of account level uh, relationships. That's very different. That kind of like the land and expand kind of model is very different than say, being uh, uh, very much like an enterprise model. And so every part of the organization I just described there needs to act differently in a product-led company. And on that, you, you talk about how they, everyone's acting differently and how everyone has their own perspective on the product. Uh, I think it's chapter eight in the book. You talk about the importance of partnering with um, engineering and the marketing and product team partnering together. One of my favorite quotes, which I wrote down was, 
Product managers own the problems, the why and the what, and engineers own the solutions, the how and the when. But it is only by collaboration that you can develop and build the best ideas. And I think that's completely accurate and true. But what were the pain points that you found in your career with <laughs> not having that collaboration between engineering and product management? And do you have any best practices that you can, you can talk to? Yeah, let's start out with a simple principle, maybe another quotable quote. Mm. Sorry, engineering doesn't work for you. I love that. I love that. (laughs) So you have to focus on very different things than what might be typically a directive or an authoritative kind of like approach to it. Uh, It's it's about focusing on why, encouraging ownership of that what and and the how, and the how and the when. Uh, the worst attitude you can bring is, is whether you intend it or not, seeing them kind of as a service organization yep. to respond to your requirements and sort of build it without question. We, we mm. all say, oh, of course we're not, we wouldn't do that. I see that behavior over and over again, mm. particularly when there's a perception, maybe even reality, that they're working in a very difficult environment where maybe engineering products aren't really getting along or maybe engineering have their own points of view and they, they, they want to challenge you should be embracing that. Um, so you do stand a much better chance of being successful if you're focusing most of your job on how are you setting context and providing supporting data. Uh, you, if you take this fundamental principle, no one likes their time wasted. So engineering wants to know you're not wasting their time. I mm. think that's a reasonable expectation. You may not have all the answers and you may have to look them in the eye saying, I've got five ideas. One of them's going to work. Four of them, we're going to be wasting our time on it, but let's go as quickly as possible to figure out which one is worthwhile. They'll be reasonable around that. Uh, so uh, I think you've just got to engage your, your engineering team around that context. Uh, good techniques. I, you know, One of my favorite growth PMs does this brilliantly, just how do you get them deeply involved in the ideation mm. process? Mm. Maybe in customer discovery, it, it can be amazing to see when you have an engineer exposed firsthand to a customer struggling with the product that they've just built, it's going to get fixed. Yeah. Right? You can say it all day, but when they see like the problem, they'll come back to the desk and silently tap away and mm-hmm. then ship something that day and it's done. So it's, it is really about um, in, treating you. Know, engaging in the, in the discovery, engaging in sort of that context setting, inv- in, inviting the questions uh, uh, and the ideation, uh, being open to be challenged on the data you actually know and you don't know and being honest about that mm. and, uh, and losing ownership of the actual solution space. And this is, this is a hard thing because product managers often, by the nature of the role, you've thought probably more about the problem and you thought earlier about the problem than other team members that you bring in. It's very easy to think you've already landed on the solution. And even in the interest of, uh, say, a sense of urgency, trying to guide them to arrive at the same answer. It's, it's better to take steps back, share the context, and maybe arrive at a different solution than, uh, than that. So that's, that's something that I, I really uh, recommend. And then finally, there, there are just um, three things that you can do on the scope, quality, and time trade-off triangle. If you just remember these things, you'll earn a lot of respect if you start with, number one, 
Do the hard work up front. No nice to haves. Get that hard work to scope as tightly as you possibly can. My performance coach is always telling me that every <laughs> every catch up. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> because if you do if you do that, you walk in with sort of already not you you're not going to be throwing all of the stuff overboard and and frustrating your team because they're like, well, you could have done this thinking ahead of time. If you're very adamant, like I've really scoped this down narrowly and this is the minimum viable or minimum markable, whatever terminology you like to use. This is the thing we need to build to test this hypothesis Mm. or to deliver this piece of value to customers. I'm convinced that I've already got that down. And if you, if you get into execution and you're starting to throw lots of scope overboard in the interest of getting it on time, you didn't do that hard work up front and you'll lose respect very quickly. That's one. Number two, Spend as much time as you possibly can not committing to dates <laughs> and navigate that estimation question very, very sensitively. Uh, if you take the bullets and the arrows or whatever from the stakeholders for holding out on setting a, a tight deadline, again, you'll earn respect because you, you, in exchange for that, agree with your team to spend time to discover and gain confidence. So when you do turn around and set dates, you have greater confidence mm. and you're constantly like, you know, updating them or, you know, asking your engineering team to commit to something before they're ready because they're just going to turn around and say, well, you better write your 50-page <laughs> requirement document up front. Our CTO, Alex, is going to absolutely love you for saying that. Literally, he's, he's always he's always pushing back on ever giving a firm date on anything. So I think <laughs> you've won a fan there. Oh, that, that's, that's good to know. Well, my, my, my final point, I'll quickly get this out of the way, is, it's the navigating the technical debt conversation because it's always, there's always technical debt and to your, your devices, you will never get rid of anything. To your team's devices, you will build the perfect architecture and, there's, and it's all very sub- subjective and it's also something that you can't really easily evaluate mm. until it comes back and hits you. Things just start getting slower, you know, you start quitting, you know, stuff starts happening and it's, it's because of that. So I just think there's just a respectful portfolio. We're going to spend some percentage of our time. I trust that we have to invest in this. It's like a tax. I don't know necessarily where it goes, but I know that if I invest over time just to remove technical debt, and, and this is particularly true to come back to the sign-up flows, when you run lots of experiments and you're moving very fast, it's very fair to use the tools to basically hack something into the side, do an A-B test, like lots of technical debt can be left behind. But then respecting and say, you know, any, any experiment that we wish to, gra- to promote to being a permanent part of our, our experience, we have to go back, redesign, build it properly. That's an example of respecting technical debt. Mm-hmm. Massive respect for writing a book. You know, I think a lot of people talk about writing a book and you know, they spend a lot of time putting pen to paper <laughs> and never actually publishing it. One of the things I love when people write a book is, you know, is how you came up with the title, the influential product manager. And, you know, sub question, did you come up with 100 titles and was that your favorite? Uh, but secondarily, you know, um, when you're thinking about the influential product manager, how are you seeing the role of product manager evolve and where does influence really become important? Well, I wish I could say that the publisher and I sat down and we brainstormed a hundred titles 
And we put that out into the market and did this sort of thorough market survey and worked out that this title was actually going to inspire as well as sell more. And we had, you know, this meeting where we formally signed off on the title. But it went a little bit more like uh, I'm not comfortable picking a random title out of the air. My publisher telling me that go with your gut. I'm saying, okay. So I brainstormed six titles. Okay. They took the look at the list and they said, that's the one. And I said, no, no, we have to test this. <laughs> we rolled out the test. I got 30 responses from mainly people I know. And it was the one. 100%? Said 100%. That one. And it was almost, it wasn't 100%, but it was very clear. Uh, and I, I have to, hats off to my publisher, their, their intuition in what they do was spot on. I was very uncomfortable because I'm data driven. I want to test my things. And I, you know, I, I thought that that was the way it worked as it was, it gave me a lot more confidence that that was the right title. And, and it had this interesting moment of epiphany for me, which is, wait a minute, that is what my book is about. And it actually allowed me also to relook at the manuscript and realize where I was truly adding a lot of value and had a, had a really clear point of view. And, and then there was all these chapters and other pieces that I was like, that, that shouldn't even be in there. And so it actually was a great forcing mechanism to drive down to this is what my book is about and uh, what I want to, to do in a differentiated way for, for product managers. And frankly, there wasn't a lot of literature out there, as I said before, that I really felt gave that practical hands-on. There's some great books, don't get me wrong, but um, this well, is what I realized that would that I'd be able to like stand up on my own and 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 have something was that was very meaningful. And I'll definitely love to answer the the other part of the question on why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, please, no, go on. I'd, I'd I'd love to I'd love to know you know more specifically the evolving role of product manager. Like, how yeah. how are you really seeing that? Well, the reason, reason why the influential product manager really uh, hit home for me was because it did actually speak to my specific observation of, of how the role has been evolving. And uh, I, I, I might get disagreed with here, but I was noticing that the true standout product managers that I was hiring in my teams had sort of requisite problem-solving skills and analytic skills and technical skills. You can't get away from having that baseline. Mm -hmm. But the things that would really stand out to me were those that had what are, you know, let's call them the, the softer skills or human skills, but they were using them in, they were integrating those skills into the, the way they work through the product life cycle in ways that would inspire their teams or, you know, or involve their teams or, or get, difficult stakeholders on side. And there was just this sort of the, what I, what I believe has evolved is we went from, you know, early in my days where a lot of technical, more technical people driving primarily delivery to expanding to where we add a lot more value is really about how, the, how we take an entire organization through that journey and, and to do another quotable quote, if you will, our job has transformed where it's no longer building the product right. It's about building the right product. 
And that requires deep empathy with customers, deeply understanding the business, um, being able to bring stakeholders along, aligning their incentives, uh, getting the team and engaging the team to, to generate the best solution rather than like being brilliant and having your own solution. <laughs> uh, and it also means that we've shifted from focusing primarily on delivery, you know, the solution of you know, delivery of the solution. It, it, to me, it, it, there's, there's these real bookends that have emerged. It's about the activities we do before we start delivery in terms of validating and prioritizing and really making sure that we're building the right thing. And at the end of it, how we think about the full go-to-market, how do we drive things like activation and adoption and sign-up mm. and owning those metrics and optimizing and focusing on how to actually hit metrics. So we've gone from maybe out, output to more outcome generated and that required us to be good at figuring out what to build and good at measuring and optimizing later because you never get it right, mm. but... Yeah, you you want to you want to follow through. Now, how many products? I mean, I've done it. How many products have been launched that no one ever looked at again? Right, launched and never came back and optimized. Or how many products have been have literally skipped? There was an idea from maybe a senior stakeholder, and it jumps straight into requirements generation. That that's that's where we're adding a lot of value, solving kind of those core problems. So that's my. My, my thesis of how the, 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 um, the role has evolved and that requires a lot more of these influential skills to be successful. With the, with the rise of the product-led growth, what mistakes do you see um, maybe new product managers make when thinking about customer ac- acquisition? I do think that um, going after vanity metrics and sort of the wrong metrics is, is a big mistake. Mm-hmm. So uh, thinking that the, 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 the job is acquisition, mm. Uh, I, and actually even more so in enterprise than, than consumer businesses, uh, overlooking the importance of onboarding and adoption, you know, activating the user, whatever, whatever that, that next phase in the funnel is to you, uh, overlooking the value of, of going beyond simply a registration to actually getting people mm. using the product and paying for and, it. And paying for it, right? <laughs> so you can easily get fooled into thinking that your job is getting that conversion rate up or getting that you know sign up rate up, but not thinking of the total experience. That's one. Um, another another is is sort of being in the thinking that you're in the business of building a digital product when actually you're in the business of solving a customer problem. Mm. What I mean by that is overlooking the the, the entire customer experience. So. They've gone and done half a dozen things before they ever came to your website. They must have. Like they must have researched you, seen an ad, something. So not thinking about what that journey looked like beforehand means you have this big discontinuous kind of like uh, or, or break in the experience arriving at this homepage and like, wait a minute, what that's that's inconsistent to either what I've learned or the messaging beforehand. So thinking about that, that experience before you get there is another big mistake I see. And thinking about your role um, sort of in terms of encouraging users to come back and taste the product and nudging them along when they've left the product. So a sign-up, uh, and this is definitely a, many companies I've joined have 
a couple of recent companies I've, I've worked with, they kind of had this perspective of a visitor, a conversion, a sign up, starting to use a product with all just the linear thing that happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. In reality, you had to think about what was the email that brought, you know, how do I bring them back? And what was, is there mobile messaging or do I need to um, educate them on the product until I find the thing that will get them activated? And that journey can, happens offsite as well as onsite and not thinking about like that total experience is, is a big mistake. Um, just because someone's reached a certain point and dropped out doesn't mean then they're, they're not people you can bring back and find what, what is going to get them activated and, and not, and the overlooking uh, the, that large pool of users, which, mm. you know, particularly if you're paying for something, can be 99% of your users can fail before they actually get to um, you know, exchange value with you, either pay you or, you know, get something out of your product. Uh, overlooking that large group of people is, is a big mistake. That's, that's some super valuable advice. I'd probably like to change tack to touch as, as we start to, as we start to wrap up and, you know, the advice you've given for our listeners has been absolutely invaluable. Um, but I'd love to know, where do you go for your inspiration? Like, you know, where, where, who's inspired you along the way, you know, what, what books kind of stand out for you as I guess, uh, sources of inspiration as you've written your book recently. There's a ton of great books on product management. So I'll start with those. Um, I, uh, I like Dan Olson's The Lean Product Playbook. Uh, I like Marissa, Melissa Perry's Escaping the Build Trap. I like, I just like the title, <laughs> but I also like the content because it really actually tackles that. Very clickbaity, that title. Uh, it is a little bit, it is a little bit. Um, <laughs> she went I, out and tested you, it, didn't yeah, she? Totally. she? She ran the test. <laughs> she ran the test. Uh, but, um, what I do like about it is just this, it's, it's a little counterculture in that we became so good. We've come so good at agile delivery. We've got all these project teams that are just like pumping stuff out. We've lost sight of, is this stuff actually being used? Is this stuff valuable? Uh, I'm just building stuff. Mm. Uh, so I like just even the thesis that we need to escape that trap. And I definitely see that in companies all, all over the place where we've become so good at say agile delivery but we're still very bad at like the prioritization, discovery and validation. Um, Rich Marinov is a good, good friend of mine. He's given me a lot of very valuable and his direct feedback on what he liked and importantly, what he didn't like about <laughs> early drafts of my book. Uh, anything, uh, any blog or any, any wisdom from him is always great. Uh, Roman Pitchler has a number of great books and he, I love his philosophical approach and he has very similar views of me in terms of there's this sort of art to, to product management as well as the science. Uh, and so those are, those are some of the, the folks I've definitely had inspiration from in terms of books and, and product management. But I have to say that the, the, the most ins- inspiration I've, I've had really have come from two, two things, uh, uh, maybe three. Uh, the first is, is I, I have this interest in alternative history and I love, love learning about like, things, challenges that have been faced in the past. And, and I, I just, we're at this point where we think, you know, it's very unique. We've got all this technology and now we're able to suddenly solve all these problems, but that's actually been human history. Mm. Yeah. And I love just reading about like everything from like the ghost map, you know, solving the source of cholera in London and figuring that 
out and or or just these these really intractable problems that we we once faced that we're now even been able to face i mean look we've just been able to develop a coronavirus vaccine in under a year it's unheard of with totally new technologies so the thing that inspires me the most is is just the power of human innovation and knowing history as i do studying it just knowing that if we really put our minds to things, we can solve almost anything, and that really keeps me going. Uh, and then um, I've had lots of really amazing mentors in my time, which has inspired me to try to be a mentor for a lot of others, in particular uh, my students and, and new, uh, new, new product managers coming into the workforce. And uh, I've also been inspired just by, by my teams that I've built. I've cons- con- consistently, that's sort of one of my playbook tricks is is coming into an organization that might have no or few product managers and really crafting very complementary teams that I've been able to draw from very, very diverse backgrounds, like you know, without engineering degrees, without even maybe business experience even, but being able to bring in these diverse teams with lots of really amazing skills who um, become great product managers. And, and I'm always inspired to see how uh, how they grow and how they apply themselves. We like to ask this for most of our podcasts. What is your most surprising win throughout your entire career? <laughs> That's such a broad what question. Was, what was your aha moment? <laughs> yeah, what was your aha moment? <laughs> so I, I think my surpri- most surprising win was sort of experiencing what a truly high-performing high team looked like mm-hmm. and kind of finding that I thought accidentally, maybe it wasn't. But just watching how everyone really started to work off each other and balance and that balance also of fun and serious and hard work, the growth mindset of the team, the psychological safety and how powerful that is. Yeah. There was the surprise win win was really sort of at, this is actually a company called Say Media, which is no longer around, was not a successful startup. And it was in the ad tech space. So we're not talking about sexy here. Yeah. Uh, although we built a team or, you know, I was fortunate enough to be the leader of that team that uh, really clicked and really gelled. And uh, that was a big surprising win because the force multiplier of having all these great people who were complementing each other and working with each other in this very um, collaborative way with, don't get me wrong, lots of constructive conflict and, you know, different points of view and friction, but it was, it was just all in that. It was all like in a unified sort of way and just seeing how so many of them have gone on to create teams of their own and become leaders of their own. We're talking about some very senior members of the Dropbox product management team, Spotify product team, the Salesforce product team, GitHub, all these people have gone on to actually own, you know, in big products mm. uh, and just to have that kind of impact in helping bring those people together. We're talking about some of them were associate PMs at the time, helping them grow. Uh, that was a real thrill and something that I, I only fully appreciated as time went on. And so I'd say that was my most surprising win. You may have been after a product win, no, but no, I think no, it's no, a product no. team win. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's the perfect, uh, perfect win. That's awesome. Look, Ken, it's been so great having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, one last plug for Ken, uh, the influential product manager. I have read it myself. Jess has also read it. And uh, we, we love the book and we've loved having you on the podcast. 
Well, thank you very much. I uh, really have enjoyed being, being here. And um, uh, thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Net Positive Podcast brought to you by Upflowy. Thank you.